Well, can you believe it? We're into the sixth week in the book of Revelation, and we're not even through chapter two. And there's 22 chapters in this book, uh, so pray for us. No, some of, some of uh, what we have in our future will move a bit more swiftly, swiftly through some sections, but we thought that through our summer, it would be great to spend time in each of the seven churches. So if you have your Bibles or an app with you, would you turn to Revelation chapter two? Revelation chapter two is where we're going. And um, is this helpful that we're spending time in Revelation? Yeah, okay, good. We're gonna keep into this for the next while. And then we'll take a little bit of a break in September and then later in October and November, we're gonna head back into Revelation and keep moving along. And then comes Christmas and we'll get our heads above water for a little bit then and celebrate Advent and the uh, Christmas season. And then sometime in the new year, we'll head back into Revelation for a little while longer as well. And there is important things that God wants to say to you through this book. And how do we know that? Because there was vitally important things that he needed to say to the first church of 2,000 years ago through this exact letter. And one of the things that's so beautiful about the Bible is that an ancient text, some of it written literally 2,000 years ago, other pieces written much, much earlier, spoke directly into the context, the culture, and the faith climate of those moments thousands of years ago. And today, here we are, 2023, when we understand what it meant, we understand then how it means to us today. And that's good news. That helps us. Because I'm sure for a lot of people, if you don't know a lot about scripture, you just think, well, that's an ancient text, and maybe there's like a, a good little line or a golden rule in there or whatever. No, 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 no. It's not just that. There's, there's something very, very rich, very, very alive. And if the claims of scripture are true concerning Jesus, it changes everything. Historians acknowledge Jesus existed. Historians acknowledge he died on a cross. His closest followers and friends saw him after he died. And when they were challenged to renounce faith in Jesus after claiming he rose from the dead, each of his 12 followers died for believing, refusing to change their stance. No, no, no I saw him. He really did rise from the dead. And that's like the boldest, wildest claim of scripture that you mean somebody actually went to the grave and then through the grave and came back to life. And it can seem unfathomable to some of us. But if it's true, I mean, if, it's, if there's a God, is it beyond him to be raised from the dead? Absolutely not. And if it's true, it actually changes everything. Because if Christ rose from the dead, there is hope for every person. There's hope for every circumstance. Because the worst of all enemies, death itself has been defeated. And yes, we get to experience, have to experience death, but there's the hope of new life. And Revelation reasserts that reality to the church of 2,000 years ago and to us today. Why was it important to them 2,000 years ago? For those who are maybe merging into this series with us in this moment, let's just, let me give you a little bit of background right now. Um, the writer, the person who received this message from God, his name is John. He was a close follower of Jesus. He's probably in his late 80s at this point. It's in the 90s AD. Most scholars would think he probably wrote this in 96 AD. He's been exiled as a prisoner to an island called Patmos. He's on a rock quarry there. Think of Texada Island. If you go to Lazo and you look over to, toward Texada, you can see the quarry door there. He's there. He's a prisoner. It's not comfortable. It's not wonderful, but he's alive. They're feeding him daily. And he's looking across the waters, and he can see Comox. And not literally, like um, he sees Ephesus. 
and he sees the other seven churches, he sees the mainland. But if he was on Texada, he would look this way and he'd see the different regions and he'd be wondering, how are, how are they doing? And why is he wondering that? Because the environment around early Christianity is shifting massively and rapidly. With each new Roman emperor comes a different way of handling the Christians in their midst. The Roman emperors and the Romans themselves thought the Christians were atheists because they said, you don't have a temple, we don't see your God, you don't have priests, we think you're atheists. And so they shunned them and they marginalized them. And they've started to feel threatened by them, especially this one emperor, his name was Domitian. And he insisted, he was very insecure, so he insisted that uh, all the people that were closest to him start calling him Lord and God. And uh, if they didn't comply, off with their heads. You know, that was the end of life for them. And so the closest circles around him complied, obviously. And then he thought, this is going well. This is a good idea. I'm going to expect this throughout the whole Roman Empire, which is the largest empire on earth. And so now everywhere he goes, people have to be willing to confess, yes, he is Lord and God. And for the average Roman, not a problem. They want to stay alive. Rome's going okay for them. Yeah, you're Lord and God. Plus, they've got a pantheon of other gods that they already believe in, so why not add another and call him Caesar? That's not a threat to them at all. But to the Christians who believe Jesus alone is Lord and Jesus is God, they're not ready to just say, sure, Caesar's Lord, Caesar's God. They refuse to say it, and that's probably what happened to John, and so off he goes in exile, and it's a bit of a move to see if that'll slow the advances of the church in bringing radical transformation under the thumb of Rome's oppression. So John feels for these early Christians. In 92 AD, a few years before John's exile, as Domitian is continuing to grow in his insecurity and he starts fretting about the growth of Christianity, in one year alone, 92 AD, he's responsible for killing 40,000 Christians. So if you're a Christian in Rome, how are you feeling? in 96 AD. You've had some cousins, some friends, some people you know from another community, you've had them lose their life over faith in Jesus. How are you feeling in the next town over? You're nervous, you're insecure. You're feeling tempted towards alternatives. Maybe I've misunderstood this gospel, maybe there's a different way of looking at it. What were those first Christians 2,000 years ago feeling? What were they afraid of? Well, first of all, there's three things. First of all, they all had real lives. So you know, they had the real-life feelings about their jobs. They had the real-life feelings about their children, you know, their parents. You know, there's complex stuff going on in the world. They had mortgage payments and raising interest rates. Okay, maybe not the same as us today, but they had real-life stuff. And then they had, secondly, cultural pressures surrounding the oppression of Rome and their own personal faith in Jesus Christ. And then third, there was all the gods of their age and this temptation to participate in pagan cultural worship. Is there any similarities between that and where we're at today? I mean, it's different, but it is the same, isn't it? We've got real lives. We've got kids, parents. We've got jobs. We've got things we worry about and wonder about. And Revelation speaks to us. Are there cultural pressures or are there gods of our age? We don't see too many people bowing to trinkets anymore, but there's all kinds of other things very much alive in our Western world, right here in Comox, too, that people happily bow to. So we have competing things vying for our attention. We have cultural pressures that we worry about and that we wonder about. 
And the main things they were facing 2,000 years ago, I think, would be the main things that you and I might be tempted towards today, too. It's one of two evils. Number one, compromise, or number two, complacency. Especially in the towns or areas in the regions of Rome where persecution was the fiercest, there was this worry uh, which then would lead people to consider compromise. There were other little pockets within the Roman Empire where the persecution wasn't as bad. It was just a little bit of marginalization. And so in some of those settings, those who were early followers of Jesus, they weren't thinking about compromise. They're like, you know what? Rome's not all that bad. Caesar's actually done a lot of good for me. I have this wealth, or I have this provision, or I have a steady life because of my environment. And so instead of compromise, it's a bit more complacency concerning faith. Meh. You know, it's important, but it's kind of, it can be a bit more periphery. And I wonder if we might face some of the same temptations today to either compromise or complacency. Let me offer you this in terms of review. Here's a sort of a statement. Why was Revelation written? It was written for this. The Revelation was written so that followers of Jesus who are facing the pressures of culture and the gods of their age could see what is actually going on behind the scenes so they could see who the Lord and Savior of the whole world really is and settle once and for all who their allegiance, trust, and worship belongs to. If you're looking for a summary of Revelation in two words, or maybe up to four, I give you this. Revelation essentially is this, behold Jesus. The author, John, under the inspiration of the Spirit, keeps writing things over and over in a kaleidoscope and a variety of demonstrative ways, vividly, so that those first followers and you and I today would behold Jesus. And then what's the result when you and I actually experience Jesus, when we actually See him, worship, witness. Now, you're in Revelation chapter two. In a few moments, we're gonna read in verse 18 till the end of the chapter. If you've been tracking along in the letters to these churches, seven churches, John has this message he kind of downloads from God's spirit to each of these seven churches. If you're tracking along, you might be noticing that it's, I think it's fascinating. God has individual things that he's saying to each of the churches, and if you're paying close attention, you realize he's actually saying things that are very relevant, unique to their actual setting. In Ephesus, he's saying things that actually matter in Ephesus, and as archaeologists are unearthing things in ancient Ephesus, they are finding things that are like, oh, this makes sense why Jesus would have said this or that to Ephesus, Pergamum, so on, to the other churches as well. I imagine that if Jesus had a message or a letter to Comox, um, and 2,000 years from now, boy, the world, we imagine, would look very different than it does now. Imagine archaeologists start studying this area, and there's an ancient text that is a letter from the heart of God to Comox, and it says something about, you know, in the fashion that Jesus speaks there about the good things, and then I have this against you, and Perhaps in the letter to Comox, he says something like this, I have this against you. You worship the sloping nose of Washington and you worship the spitting goose. Now, 2,000 years from now, they would be like, a spitting goose? My goodness, what? The sloping nose of Washington. Did Comox really, were they really into the first president of the United States? But to the people of Comox, to the historians who would study the archaeology here, they'd be like, hang on. There was a Mount Washington, and everybody goes skiing all winter long there. And the spitting goose, it's goose spit. Could, could we actually, in Comox, be guilty of worshiping creation, not just creator? 
Might that be part of his message if it was to us? In, the, in that kind of way, when God is speaking to each of the churches, he's, he's speaking their language where they're like, oh, this is, you're talking about us here. Oh. I want you to have that in mind as we give a bit of thought to this community and the letter to it today, Thyatira. In the city of Thyatira, the patron god in the city was Apollo. You've heard of Apollo, certainly. Apollo was the sun god, thinks sunlight, or even the, the flames of fire coming from the sun. Apollo was the patron god of the guild, uh, or the bronze trade. So there was quite a work of bronze and copper that was occurring in the area of Thyatira, and so Apollo himself was the patron god in that guild. Speaking of guilds, as historians have studied ancient Thyatira, they've discovered it had an unusually high number of guilds. It's like everything got unionized there. Pick whichever city or province you might think of. Um, that's them. And so as historians have studied it, they've found evidence of um, guilds for those who worked with wool, guilds for those who worked with linen, those who worked with leather, those who made clothing, those who made shoes, those who made pottery those who were bakers, the list goes on and on and on. And essentially, if you wanted to participate in business in Thyatira, you had to be part of the guild. But there was a lot of pagan worship wrapped up in the guild meeting, so that presented a problem for the Christians, didn't it? Now, another thing, obviously, every city we go to, there seems to be a problem with emperor worship. And of course, it's happening in Thyatira as well. Now, what's interesting in Thyatira, both Apollo and Caesar were known as the son of Zeus. Zeus was the high god. And so Apollo, the patron god of the city and the bronze guild, and Caesar himself are known as the son of God. Keep these things in mind now as we begin to read this together. Beginning in verse 18. To the, church, uh, to the angel of the church of Thyatira write these words. These are the words of the son of God. Isn't that interesting? Do you know that in the revelation, this is the only time Jesus is called the Son of God. Isn't that interesting that he would select saying that to the people in Thyatira? He's, he knows them. He knows what the lingo's like in their town, so he's offering something for them to think about. Whose eyes are like blazing fire, fire Apollo. Makes you think about that, doesn't it? Whose feet are like burnished bronze. Is he talking to the right church here? I think he is. I know your deeds, your love and your faith, your service and your perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel. Now, let's just pause there for a moment. Who is Jezebel? As we're going to read here, there literally was some person of leadership or influence in the church community of Thyatira. It's unlikely that our actual name was Jezebel. But Jesus uses this name to draw reference and memory to those who could re recall a Jezebel, Jezebel from the Old Testament. You see, in Israel's history, there was a time where there was a king named Ahab, and he married a woman named Jezebel. She was from a pagan land, and she embraced another god, not Yahweh. She worshipped a god called Baal or Baal. And so Ahab married her. He shouldn't have done that. And in she came into his life and into Israel. And she began to introduce the building of um, worship centers for Baal in Israel, in God's place, in God's, among God's people. And so it, it spiritually polluted 
God's community. And what was presented through Jezebel to the people of Israel is this idea, hey, yes, you can worship Yahweh, but guess what? You can also worship Baal too. Dietrich Bonhoeffer observes, and I think he's right, the human heart has the capacity for only one all-encompassing, all-embracing allegiance. So there's a Jezebel active with influence in Thyatira. Here's what Jesus continues to say about her. She calls herself a prophetess. By her teachings, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I'll say more about that in just a few moments. I've given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead. I mean, this, this serious language from Jesus here. And when he uses the word dead here, I just want to point out something. For some people, as we approach scripture, we think, I'm coming to Jesus because I've got to find the way to heaven and not hell. It's all about heaven or hell or heaven or hell. And Jesus is not making this about heaven or hell. Friends, scripture is about life or death. It's about life or death. And when you give yourself in the wrong way, you're on a path to death that leads to second death. Carrying on, Jesus says, then all the churches will know that I am he who searches the hearts and minds, and I will repay those or each of you according to your deeds. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who have not uh, who do not hold on to her teachings and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you. Only hold on to what you have until I come. To who, uh, those who overcome and do my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. Jesus is ending with promises as he does in the other letters as well. And then he references an Old Testament text here. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He will dash them to pieces like pottery, just as I have received authority from my Father. Verse 28, I will also give them, those who overcome, the morning star. Verse 29, he concludes as he does elsewhere. He who has an ear, let them hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. We could unpack a lot of things from this letter, but I'm going to try to simplify it and then lead us to to some things we must see about Jesus in this text. Here's two things that we need to learn from Thyatira. Number one, just because you may appear Christian does not mean you follow Jesus. It's a sober, sobering word, isn't it? Just because someone may appear Christian does not mean they actually follow Jesus. We see that message living in this text, don't we? Secondly, compartmentalization is not an option. Let's unpack some of that a little bit. So Jezebel, this Jezebel character is at work in the church of Thyatira. And imagine what those people are feeling given what Rome is doing all around them. Remember, just a few years earlier, 40,000 of their Christian friends have died. So they're feeling threatened, they're feeling worried, they're feeling nervous, they're feeling marginalized, they're feeling persecuted. And Jezebel comes along and she's turning people towards sexual immorality and food sacrificed to idols, idolatry. 
Jezebel is coming along and she's saying, I think there's an alternative to the pressure and the persecution we're feeling. I mean, that might catch the attention of some of the Christians, right? And what is her alternative? Compartmentalization. We don't think about this, and it's not said this way in the text, but as we begin to think about this, I, I think you'll realize this lives in here. This temptation towards compartmentalization. Essentially, if you're looking for a simpler way of understanding it, Jezebel is saying, friends, you're not pancakes, you're waffles. Compartments. What if we box everything up in life into a grid of little compartments and she's sort of suggesting to them, guess what? In the, in the makeup of who you are, there is a Yahweh box. <laughs> There's a Yahweh part of you. And guess what we can do? There's a Baal part of you. And so it introduced a new way of thinking to the people in Thyatira. And when you think back to the real Jezebel of the Old Testament, that's what she was doing in Israel, right? You know, there's Yahweh and then there's Baal. Why not compartmentalize? And that, that went against the ideology of the day. The Jewish faith had never thought that there was compartments to spirituality and non-spirituality. Everything was spiritual. And that's how Jesus lived out faith as well. But along comes this Jezebel idea, this ideology into the church of Thyatira saying, well, there might be a church you and then a work you. Maybe there's a family me, a home me, there's a friend's version of me, there's a school me, there's a holidays me, there's an online me. Well, there's a business me, there's a political me, there's a money me, there's a sexuality me, there's an entertainment me, and you could go on and on and on listing all these compartments that we allow to live in our life, and we think, yeah, I'm kind of in the driver's seat here, 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 and here, and here, but guess who's in charge of the Jesus me? Jesus is. He's Lord of the Jesus me. And compartmentalization doesn't work. As I referenced in the ancient ways of our Jewish roots, there was no sort of breaking up life into spiritual and unspiritual. In the Old Testament, if you brushed your teeth, it was spiritual, it was sacred. When you brush your teeth, Today, I hope you did. It is spiritual. It is sacred because there is no division between what is spiritual and what is not. Jezebel says, you're not pancakes, you're waffles. But Jesus says, you're pancakes. Sorry, Eddie. <laughs> Compartmentalization leads to compromise and it leads to complacency. And in Thyatira, this individual, Jezebel, is misleading Christians into, in particular, one of two things or both, idolatry and sexual immorality. Why are those two listed? Because in the ancient world, idolatry and sexual immorality were the hallmarks of assimilation into pagan culture. And so what is Jezebel doing? She said, I know you guys are, were called into Christ, and yes, we still have Jesus with us, but guess what? You can eat at the idol worship feasts. And guess what? When they get out of hand and it's just all weird and wild sexuality, that's okay, because that's part of that part of us. And there was compartmentalization going on within the church of Thyatira, and it was destructive. 
Now, this idea of meat being sacrificed to idols and it being outlawed and kind of a banned thing for Christians, Pastor Clay spoke to that a little bit last week. I'm going to share something in a moment. It mattered so much in that context because it was so attached when you ate meat that was sacrificed to an idol. It was so attached to this idea of taking fellowship with those who are worshiping other idols and taking fellowship with those gods as well. In our day and age, it's not quite the same. I remember a bunch of years ago when I was a young adult, we had neighbors who were from Fiji. They were lovely people. They were Muslim by background. And their son got married and we were invited to their wedding. And we knew there were all kinds of rituals that took place before the goat was prepared. But we still ate the goat because it was a, it's, a, it's handled in a totally different way these days than it was back then. Let me read what theologian William Barclay says about the trade guilds. Remember, for anybody to have business or be involved in commerce, have a job, you had to be a participant in one of the local guilds. Here's how idol worship was tied into that. The trade guilds had common meals together. So if you were part of a guild, you would go to these common meals. The meal would begin and end with a cup of wine poured out as a libation and an offering to the gods. It was, in fact, the heathen grace before and after the meal. Could a Christian join in a ceremony like that? Still further, such a meal would almost certainly follow a sacrifice. The token part of the animal would be offered on the altar. The meat of it would be given to the worshipers to make a feast for the members of his trade guild. Could a Christian sit and eat that meat, which had been offered to idols? Could he also participate uh, in the meal where the meat had already been offered to Apollo? The local god. Still further, this trade guild feast, not infrequently, degenerated into carousals where drunkenness and immorality were the order of the day. Could a Christian participate in a feast where drunkenness and fornication were the accepted thing? You could see why, for these people who had businesses, who had jobs, and were part of these guilds, it was a very tricky thing for them to continue to be employed in Thyatira and be a Christian. And so when this voice of the Jezebel-type person in their church starts sort of whispering these ideas of compartmentalization and compromise and complacency, there's a little bit of like, well, maybe this is how life should work. And so instead of allowing faith to form us, they begin reforming faith in an inappropriate way. And it leads them to participate in meal feasts, celebrating idols, and getting involved in things that spin out into utter sexual immorality. And so Jesus has things to say to that again. And for some of us in the room, we're like, really? Jesus talks about sexuality and purity? Like, does it actually matter to him? Why does it matter to Jesus? Can't he just leave that alone? No, because that's not a compartment that lives separate that we get to manage. Why does sexuality and purity matter to Jesus? A couple reasons. Number one, as Jesus says in the Gospels, he knows it's by his Father's design. His Father's design concerning sexuality is what brings definition to sexuality. Not self, not our own desires, not what culture says, what his Father designed. Second reason why this matters to Jesus is because of the, the motif throughout Scripture of covenant. God, early on in Scripture and all throughout Scripture, is a covenant-making God. He's making agreements with people, and when he does, he's saying, I give myself to these people completely, exclusively, and permanently. And God shows us what covenant looks like. And then marriage language includes covenant. And in the realm of marriage, two parties are coming together before God saying, I give myself to you completely, exclusively, and permanently. 
And in a marriage relationship, sexuality is covenant renewal celebration. There should be applause, whistling, and cheering, but that's okay. <clears throat> Somebody's working on a whistle back there. I appreciate the effort. Um, covenant matters to Jesus. If it didn't, he'd be like, ah, whatever. You matter to Jesus. In the absence of healthy boundaries and guidelines and design and sexuality, imagine all the pain and problem we'd find ourselves in. With compassion and love, Jesus has something to say about sexuality connected to how his father designed at creation and how covenant fits within our gospel narrative. I remember uh, a person I met several years ago told me a story about a time him and his brother were teenagers sitting in the back of the car out for a drive and their dad's in the front. Um, so it's just the three of them in the car. And they drive by on a street they were down in California and um, the boys, teens, noticed a woman that they thought was particularly attractive that they drove by. And so the boys were like... And then the, this guy, I know, his name's Sean, he's like, Dad, how come you didn't look? And his dad said, I care so much about my connection with your mom. Um, Daryl Johnson, who writes an excellent book on the book of Revelation, tells a story in there from a time when he was a missionary in Asia. If you've traveled in Asia, you would know that um, sexual opportunity is everywhere. It's part of the hospitality service in almost any city you go to there. And when Daryl Johnson was um, pastoring a church in Manila, he was at a men's retreat, and one of the guys came and shared a story with him about um, a time he was on a business trip, and he was having a meal at a restaurant in a hotel, and he was propositioned by one of the ladies in local hospitality. And he felt especially vulnerable. Um, he felt tempted. But he did what he always did. In his briefcase, he had a picture of his family, and in his wallet, he had a picture of his family. And so he pulled out his wallet, a woman standing next to him, and he opened it up, and he said, you see her? I belong to her. And his practice was to look into the eyes of his wife on the picture anytime he felt tempted, wherever he was. And I think in this letter to Thyatira, what the Spirit is giving us through John is a picture of Jesus that when we feel tempted towards compromise or complacency or compartmentalization, whatever it may be, worshiping the idols of the day and age, sexual immorality, there is a picture in Thyatira that we can put in our wallet that we can look at and we can see, this is Jesus. I belong to him. And so I want to take the next few moments to tell you about seven things that we see quickly in this passage about Jesus. Number one. I want you, and this letter wants us, to behold the Jesus who beholds us. What do we learn about his eyes in this text? They're blazing like fire. We think a little bit about Apollo, who's the god of the sun. But what else do we think about? Where is Jesus standing among the lampstands who are his churches? Where are his eyes? He's looking at his churches who have a flame of fire on them. He loves his church. He loves you. He's looking at you. Behold the one who beholds us. And do we know he's actually watching us? What else does he say to the church in Thyatira? I know your deeds. He is watching our lives. He knows online you. He knows entertainment you. He knows us. He watches us. 
And then he even says in the same letter that he's the one who searches our mind and our hearts. He doesn't just see the deeds that we do. He can see right through us into our thoughts, into our feelings. He knows the deep things and the secrets of our lives. And for some of us, rightly so, we feel a little nervous about that. Okay. So the second one comes to us as good news. Number two, behold Jesus who is merciful. How merciful is Jesus? What do we learn from this letter? He shows mercy to Jezebel. How wicked is she? She's, she's wicked. And how do we know he shows her mercy? I have given her time to repent. Wow. She was leading people astray in a church that he loves. And what does he do? Smite her with his, smite her right away? No. Gives time to repent. And we learn she ends up refusing. And so she's written her own judgment for herself and brings it upon herself. 2 Peter 3.9 says this about God. He is patient with us, not wanting anyone to perish, but for everyone to come to repentance. Repentance means changing our thinking, changing our direction. Friends, if you have something in the secret version of you or a compartment of your life, he gives you time, but it's not forever. It is limited. He is merciful. Deal with it. Do something about it. Don't fall into the same path of destruction the people in Thyatira did. So yes, God is merciful. We also must face, thirdly, Jesus is just. Behold Jesus who is just. He says in this letter, I will give to each of you according to your deeds. Well, that sounds fairly fair, doesn't it? I will give to each of you according to your deeds. Some of you, many of you, were part of a series we did last fall called The Story of God and the Five Trees. In our church family, that's how we talk about the gospel, that throughout scripture there are five trees, very distinct, very important, that appear, that when we observe them, we understand the story of scripture better, and we understand the whole of the gospel better. The first tree is the tree of life, then the second tree is the tree of freedom, then there's a tree of faithfulness, the cross, which is a tree of forgiveness, and the tree of life shows up again in Revelation, it's a tree of renewal. He is going to make all things new. A comment quickly about the second tree. In the Garden of Eden, there's two trees. One is the tree of life. When people eat of it, they're declaring their dependence upon God, and it brings life to them. And then there's a second tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. There's been a lot of confusion about it, but I think there are some things that are quite clear about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It was put in the center of the garden right beside so that humanity would have a choice. That you and I wouldn't be trapped in a paradise prison, wouldn't feel forced into a relationship with God. God loves you. And control is a violation of love. Therefore, God does not want robot followers and friends. He wants people who choose him because they want him. So that's why in the garden, in his great creation, he gives humanity the option to make a choice to reject him if they wish to, but he lays it out clearly for them. Listen, if you go your own way, if you choose the path of independence, destruction always follows. But if that's what you want, your will be done. The Christian life really is about turning toward God saying your will be done. What's phenomenal about the heart of God is we see in the second tree, he actually turns to humanity and says your will be done. Some of us shake a fist at God saying, why is the world in this shape? And I think he turns to us and says, why is the world in this shape? Thy will be done. You want me, you have me. You don't want me, you do it your way. 
And so what does he say to the church of Thyatira? I give to each of you according to your deeds. This is God who is merciful also being just. You and I inherit the consequences of our deeds. Our deeds, the way you and I visibly live our lives, reveals our allegiance. Now what's so beautiful about the gospel, what's so beautiful about that fourth tree, the cross, is that at the cross, Jesus took the consequences for our deeds so that you and I could gain the consequences of his deeds. Wow, that's magnificent. He's just and he's merciful. Fourth, there's three promises. Behold Jesus who promises to return. Thyatira receives the first promise in the revelation that Jesus is coming back. And guess what that meant for that church? Hope. We're not abandoned. He will come and make all things new. That's what he's doing. This is the picture of Jesus we turn to when we open our wallets and look into his eyes. He's coming back. And friends, for those of you who feel discouraged today, be reminded, he promises he will come back. He will make things new. Number five, behold Jesus who promises to share authority. At the end of the letter, there's two promises. To the one who overcomes. What does the word overcome mean? To the one who remains loyal to Jesus. Daryl Johnson says this of overcomers. Overcomers are those, we've got this for the screen there, Steve. Overcomers are those who are willing to lose, willing to be left out, willing to be rejected by the culture. So is that you and I? I mean, look at that list. It's not comfortable, is it? Are you willing to lose? Are you willing to be left out? Are you willing to be rejected by culture? If yes, Congratulations, you're an overcomer. Congratulations, you're remaining loyal to Jesus. Now, he promises to share his authority with those who remain faithful. I want you just to think for a moment, what would that mean to the people in Thyatira and scattered around in ancient Rome where the Christians are under the thumb of Rome's oppression to hear that one day you will rule this world with me? They're like, oh, <laughs> that is that's hopeful news for them, isn't it? What a turnaround. Sixth, behold Jesus who promises to share himself. What's the second promise as the letter concludes? The morning star. This is the first reference in Revelation to the morning star. So the church in Thyatira, they're listening to somebody who's come with a scroll to their church to read this letter, this apocalypse from John at Patmos. And as they're reading letters, all of a sudden, there's a letter to Thyatira. So you're one of the Christians gathered in one of the homes, and they're like, to the angel of the church of Thyatira. And they all cheer and whistle like you've been doing today. Yay, he's got a message for us. And he says all kinds of things, and they're like, oh, he knows us, he knows us. And it would have been exciting, and it would have been sobering. And then at the end, he says, but if you remain faithful, I promise you the morning star. And they're like, oh, okay, what does that mean? But then they would have listened for the next hour as the rest of the letter of Revelation was read to them. And right towards the end, they would have heard Jesus say that he is the morning star. And they've got sharp memories. Wait, remember the promise for us earlier? We get the morning star. We get him, 
The morning star is the star that comes out at the darkest point of night, signaling it will not get any darker. Light is coming. A new day is coming. That is the Jesus who gives himself to us. Lastly, number seven, behold Jesus, who is better. In Thyatira, they had coins for commerce. And on one side of the coin was Apollo's image. And Apollo, the patron deity of the bronze trade, is on one side. And on the other, Caesar, the son of God. And so in Thyatira, whenever there was exchanges or business or purchases or selling, these are the coins that they're seeing over and over and over again. And how does Jesus open these letters? These are the words of the true and better son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire, take that Apollo, and whose feet are like the burnished bronze. Jesus knows their situation. He's like, I know that you guys understand this idea of son of God. I know that you, un idea, you guys understand this idea of bronze. You guys are good at that. You've got the guild and all that kind of stuff. I know what your coins are like. You see bronze, you see Apollo all the time. I'm the true and better bronze. I'm strong. It says in Revelation 1 and 2 that his kingdom is built on feet of bronze, cannot be crushed, will not rust. His kingdom will never fail. He says, I, you guys understand this son of God jargon that Apollo and Caesar think about themselves? Guess what? I'm the true and better son of God. I think for the people in Thyatira, there was this realization. He knows us. He knows our community. And he's calling us to him. And friends here in Comox, the Comox Valley today, he knows you. He knows if you have compartments and all of us struggle with it. He knows the compartments. He knows you. He knows the Comox Valley. He knows the issues. But he graciously gives us time to change our thinking, change our actions. He's merciful. He's just. He gives himself. He makes promises. Let's stand together. Revelation offers us fresh views of the living, risen Son of God. And the response is to share his name and to worship him. Let's respond and worship together. call our prayer ministry team to come and make themselves available right away here as we conclude today we're going to allow the next few moments to just be given to prayer and worship in this room if you're looking forward to hanging out and catching up with others then uh, as soon as we've concluded in prayer go ahead head to the lobby or outside but let's just really respect this space for prayer and worship here some of you i think many of us if we're honest feel the work of the spirit in our lives pointing out a proneness towards compartmentalization. From time to time, allowing like certain parts of our lives to kind of feel like, well, I'm in charge of that. And we know that this particular compartment or that is a little bit out of order. It, it's out of line. It doesn't fit with what God's called us to. In fact, there aren't to be compartments. You're not waffles, you're pancakes. And today is an opportunity for this message to Thyatira to speak to us, that you have a, you have a window of time to repent before our self-management of the compartments begin destroying us. Because they will, they always do.
And so God, because he's gracious, merciful, and just, says, let's make changes to that. Perhaps some of you, you're like, you know what? I need somebody to pray with me about that. I need to mark this moment. I need to ask for God's help with that. This team would love to pray with you today. Others of you, it's, there's a need or concern in your life. There's a loved one, a family member, a friend, a health circumstance. Don't leave without having somebody pray with you specifically for that. God loves to work through his church family to bring hope and peace and transformation. Let's conclude in prayer together. Father, we thank you for the good work of your spirit speaking to us through your word faithfully every time. Sometimes it stings a bit because we, we realize we're guilty as charged. But that's your grace and your love at work in us saying, I have a better way for you. And so, Father, for all of us, would you do us an inventory of our souls? If you find any compartments, speak to us about it. As uncomfortable as it can be, we want to make change. We want to change our thinking on this. We want to follow your ways on this. Now, Father, as we go into your world, we do so on your mission, and we de declare again our dependence on you and our need for one another. The kind of love, hope, justice, mercy, peace, healing, help that we found in you is the kind of thing we know is desperately needed here in the Comox Valley. We want our neighbors, co-workers, and others to experience this too. So use us, use us together in the power of your spirit this week in this community to bring the reality of Jesus into the everyday stuff of life here. We pray this now in the strongest name, which is yours, Jesus. And everyone said, amen. amen.